We're in the process of working our way chronologically through the Old Testament. We began in Genesis and followed the narrative all the way to Exodus 20, where the Israelites come to Mount Sinai and are brought into covenant with God. We spent some time studying the nature of that covenant and the various types of law pertaining to it and the religious system associated with that covenant, the priests and the physical tabernacle and the ceremonies and so forth. And we've left Sinai now and the Israelites have wandered around in the desert now for about 40 years and are now on the cusp of entering the promised land. Last Sunday evening we saw that Moses is about to die and that God made provision for Joshua to lead the people after Moses' death so that they might not be sheep without a shepherd. However, before Moses dies, God says in Numbers 31 and verse 2 to Moses, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people, which is a euphemism for death. So that's Moses' final assignment here is to carry out vengeance upon the Midianites. And that's the section of text we're looking at tonight. Numbers 31 verses 1 to 24. I left off 25 and following because it's really just details about how they divided the plunder. But the narrative, I think, ends at, the narrative section, I think, ends at 24. And this is an uncomfortable passage in a couple of ways as it, it affronts our modern Western sensibilities. But all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Even those ancient texts written from a very different cultural perspective, which bother us and offend us. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So let's tackle it, beginning first with a look at what's actually in the text, and then we will move towards an examination of the theological significance of it and its application to our lives. So firstly, here plainly we see the obvious main thrust of the text is God's judicial sentence upon the Midian, Midianites here. The language is avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. They have done something wrong in God's sight and God's vengeance is to be poured out upon the Midianites. Now this is the case generally with all of the wars that Israel is about to fight and all of the people of Canaan. There is a general guilt, a general sin, a general culpability for wickedness which has rendered these Canaanites liable to God's vengeance. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, Abram is in the land of Canaan and God, God speaks to him and he says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, which is Egypt. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation Come back here, that is Canaan, in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. By the time that the Israelites come back to Canaan, the implication is that the iniquity of the Amorites is now complete. And it is because of the iniquity of 
these people who dwelt in the land reaching its completion where God says, all right, that's the full measure, no more. The time for vengeance has come. This is one of the reasons that the conquest of Canaan is ethically legitimate. There, God is not killing innocent people. God is not sending the Israelites to kill people who have not sinned and have not incurred the wages of sin, which is death. God is sending His people to kill sinners who have been rebelling against God for a long time until the point where God says, alright, enough is enough, and the Israelites are going to come and wipe them out. Generally, this is the case. And so the Midianites are culpable of sin and liable to God's vengeance in a general way, the way that all of the people of Canaan are. And you can refer back to my sermon on Numbers 21, verses 1 to 3, for a fuller exploration of the justice of God with respect to the conquest of the Canaanites, if you're interested. But in addition to being generally culpable of sin the way that all the Canaanites are, the Midianites are especially culpable of a specific sin, which was, with respect to the incident recorded for us in Numbers chapter 25, we will remember the Balaam narrative, which we spent a number of weeks looking at. There was a king named Balak, who was the king of Moab, and he got together with the king of Midian in Numbers 22 and decided to try to get Balaam to curse the people of Israel for him. Now, through the subsequent chapters and our our study of that narrative, we, we saw that the Lord overruled each time and actually made Balaam bless the people instead of cursing them. And so Balaam wasn't able to collect on the reward that Balak, the king of Moab, had offered him in conjunction with the king of Midian. Now, this was disappointing to Balaam, evidently. We read in the New Testament, in uh, 2 Peter, that Balaam loved gain from wrongdoing. So Balaam wasn't able to get gain from wrongdoing in this situation, so evidently he was frustrated. And what did he do? Well, in Numbers 31, which we read just now, in verse 16, Moses is talking about the women of Midian, and he says, Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. So, presumably, when... Balaam went home frustrated that he wasn't able to get gain from wrongdoing. The wheels in his mind were a spinning. And he came up with an idea and he went back to the elders of Moab and Midian and said to them, listen, I have a bright idea. Send your women out to entice the men of Israel to commit idolatry. And that's in fact what happened in Numbers 25. And so... God's wrath was kindled against the people of Israel and a plague came upon the people. And, uh, I mean, we covered that a couple weeks ago, but that was the incident of sin caused by uh, the Midianites. So it is not just generally because the Midianites are culpable of sin the way all the people of Canaan are, but in addition to that, there is also the specific 
and additional guilt of being culpable for enticing the Israelites to sexual immorality and idolatry back in Numbers chapter 25. So God says to Moses now, take vengeance on Midian for these reasons. That's what's going on in this text before us. Another thing that's going on in this text before us, which we might not think anything of if we lived in the Dark Ages, but since we live in modern West, another thing that will probably catch our eye is that they took women as captives of war. And that is shocking to us and surprising to us and probably somewhat scandalous to us. But it's right here in the text. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore, kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. But all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. Pretty shocking to our modern Western ears. Well, let's be very clear here. The Israelite men were not allowed to rape, to abuse, or even to seduce captives of war. There is, of course, the moral prohibitions against any kind of sexual immorality, which includes in war. But moreover, we actually read specific directions about how the men of Israel are allowed to relate to female captives of war. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, 10 to 14. You can turn there if you like, or I'll just read it for you. Number, or, pardon me, Deuteronomy 21, 10 to 14. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured, and shall remain in your house and lament her father and mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants, but you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. So not only is there the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, which also includes all, all other manner of sexual immorality, fornication and rape and whatnot. All of that is prohibited in this category of no adultery as we don't understand the Ten Commandments to be utterly wooden and uh, specific such that, for example, you shall not murder doesn't mean that you are allowed to torture. But there are, the Ten Commandments are catch-all categories for sins in those categories. So not only is any sexual violence prohibited in war simply on the basis of the moral commandments of God which are applicable all the time, even in war. But moreover, we read specific guidance about how the men of Israel are to deal with female captives. And what we see 
is that the Israelite men were not allowed to be intimate with a female captive until after a month had passed by. So when it says here, all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. That's not a euphemism for them being intimate with these young women. If they desire them, they are allowed to bring them into their house and wait a month and then make them wives. That's what Deuteronomy 21 says. There is to be no sexual violence of any kind. And in fact, there's not even to be the immediate marriage of an Israelite man to, in this case, a Midianite woman. This month is to mitigate against mere lust and, in fact, even infatuation and a rash decision. As we know from human history and the accounts of other wars, obviously there is quite a lot of sexual violence often committed in the midst of war. And this was not to be the case among the people of Israel. There were to be no crimes of passion in that sense. And there was to be a, a month that had to go by in which a man held himself back and had time to consider his desire for this woman rather than to act impetuously and to sin against her in the midst of war. And it, this also pre prevented the Israelite men this month, this stipulated month, also pre prevented the Israelite men from rashly taking wives of the captives without properly considering whether they could follow through on those commitments for the rest of that woman's life. And so a month was to go by during which presumably there would be sober thought and reflection and after a month went by, if the man still wanted to marry her, he could. The month also afforded the woman at least some time for grief to mourn after her family who had been killed in the war and for psychological processing of tremendous change. One day she wakes up in her own village and by the end of that day, her family's dead and she's a captive of war. Now you might say a month is not long enough and I certainly understand, but a month is longer than the pagan nations afforded female captives of war in other cases. This is God's stipulation for how female captives of war were to be treated by the Israelite men. So this is what's going on in this text. God's judicial sentence and taking women as captives of war. What is the theological significance and application of these things for our lives in the 21st century? Since we're already on the theme of these female captives, let me start there and then we'll circle back around to God's judicial sentence. First of all, God's endorsement of marrying female captives, notwithstanding that a month must go by and so on and so forth, God's endorsement of marrying female captives negates modern Western ideas, many, many modern Western ideas 
of human rights regarding autonomy and self-determination with respect to especially where you live, your vocation, and who you marry. If God says it's okay to forcibly take this woman from her village and make her your wife, that means she's not allowed to choose to remain in her village. She's not allowed to choose her vocation, whether she will be a spinstress or, um, you know, work on the family farm or whatever. And she's not allowed to choose who she's going to marry. She's going to marry the Israelite soldier that makes her his wife. Now, in the modern West, we tend to think of human rights as basically autonomy, well, well, sorry, not to reduce it, but with respect to these things that we're talking about, we think of human rights as, as including autonomy and self-determination with respect to these things. We think that it would be a violation of human rights, for example, for you to be forced to live somewhere you don't want to live. It would be against your human rights, we would tend to think for you to be told that this is going to be your job and not that, we would think to be against human rights. And to be told who you're going to marry, we would tend to think would be against human rights. We have very much built modern Western culture around the idea of individual autonomy. But most of the world throughout human history has not thought about human rights this way and, and frankly neither does the scriptures. You may remember the old Disney movie Aladdin, right? It came to mind as I was preparing this sermon. I didn't, I didn't bother to research it to the extent that I went and rewatched it again. But I did, I did look it up and re-familiarize myself with the names of some of the characters involved. So you remember there is the Sultan of Agrabah, this uh, father of Princess Jasmine, who takes applications essentially from suitors to marry his daughter. And there are various suitors who come along, including Jafar. Right? And we know that obviously Aladdin, the young fellow from the street, is not going to make a very compelling case that he should be the right suitor. So he, he purports to be Prince Ali. And, you know, it goes on this way. But, but Princess Jasmine objects to the whole enterprise, the whole process of her dad entertaining suitors to marry her. And she says, if I do marry, I want it to be for love. Now, let's just be clear. This is not a Middle Eastern movie. This is an American movie. Who made this movie? The people from that area of the world? No, the people from the modern West. And the ethic that is taught through that movie is that your father doesn't arrange a marriage for you. 
That's backwards. That's old-fashioned. You marry for love. You marry whosoever you please. You marry for love. And of course, we see the way that this radical autonomy has developed to the point where people say, I can love whoever I want. And I can marry whoever I want. Irrespective of their gender. Right? So you see how modern Western conceptions of human rights have been built on this idea of radical individualism, radical autonomy, such that no one else can tell you where you got to live, what your vocation or station in life is, or who you can marry. Just understand that that is a very modern Western idea. Look, I'm not going to arrange a marriage for my sons. I'm going to let them marry for love. <laughs> All right? Look, if you, if you let your sons and your daughters do the same, it's not wrong. It's, it's okay. It's an acceptable way to do things within the parameters that God gives us about sexuality and the proper bounds of marriage and so on and so forth. That's all right. But just understand that when we think in these terms, we're thinking in terms of what's familiar and comfortable to our culture and not necessarily in terms of the way things are and have to be in God's eyes. It's worth noting that Princess Jasmine, ironically, anachronistically, and whatever the word would be, which would indicate inconsistency between where she's supposed to live in the movie and what her ideas are, she has a very modern Western mindset. So that's more, it's not, necessarily, it's not necessarily a practical application. It's more of a worldview application to consider how we think about our place in the world and what we think of and how we respond to and how we receive or reject the narrative that we ought to be authors of our own stories and that no one else can write our stories for us and that you don't no one else should tell you what you have to do no one else has that right certainly not an Israelite soldier but the way some people phrase it not even God A passage like this with its implicit paradigm for how God actually endorses the marrying, the humane marrying of female captives ought to really make us question and undermine some of the assumptions that perhaps we make as modern Western people about human rights. Now, on to the theological significance of the judicial sentence passed upon the Midianites here in this passage. As we saw earlier, generally they are culpable as sinners the way that the rest of the Canaanites are culpable as sinners. And they are specifically culpable for the sin that happened in Numbers 25 where they seduced the people of Israel into idolatry and sexual immorality. 
Well, none of you are thousands of years old, so I know you weren't there in Numbers 25, part and parcel of that operation, and so you're not specifically culpable for what happened at Shittim, where the Israelites yoked themselves to Baal of Peor in idolatry and sexual immorality. You're not culpable of that specific sin, neither am I. Right? We're not, we're not ancient Canaanites either. So we're not, we're not culpable for the sins of the Amorites reaching completion. The way that the sins of the Amorites reached completion and God sent the Israelites in to conquer Canaan and essentially to exterminate these people. Therefore, since we're not culpable of those sins, we're innocent. Right? We, we, we're, we're not guilty. God, God would have no right to, to punish us. Would He? Right? You, you see, even though, even though, yes, the context is different, and we're not culpable of the exact same specific sins that the Midianites here in this passage are culpable of, the reality is we are culpable. We're, we're culpable for the modern sins right, that, that we commit. We may not have committed the exact same ones as these Midianites, but we are still sinners. And you realize that if God were to send an army to come in and deal with us here in Barbados, the way He sends an army in to deal with the people in the Promised Land, God would be just. That's an affront, again, to our modern Western sensibilities, but this is the way the Bible puts it. Right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And if God, look, if God works out our temporal affairs in such a way that we die at the edge of the sword as a temporal judgment for our sin, we can't fault God. Right? We deserve not only to die temporally, but we also deserve... As Emmanuel alluded to earlier uh, when he prayed, Jesus says, don't fear those who can merely kill the body. I mean, that's a, what a light thing. But, uh, don't be afraid of people who can... All they can do is kill you. Right? Jesus says, fear him who after he has killed the body has the authority to cast both body and soul into hell. Right? Look, we deserve not only to die at the edge of the sword, but also that spiritual death in the afterlife which we call hell this is what we deserve this is what we all deserve and again the modern western world we're good people we don't deserve this but this is the biblical worldview this is the biblical paradigm here we deserve punishment it is against this backdrop that the Christian gospel makes sense. The Christian gospel doesn't make sense if you utterly imbibe a modern Western worldview. After all, why would Jesus need to die on the cross for a bunch of good people? And if, and if God is loving the way that modern Western people think about loving, which is you basically never say a cross word to anyone, never contradict, never confront anyone, let everything go. 
look the other way at any kind of sinful abomination. If God is loving that way, then why would He punish sin at all anyway? What a, what a primitive idea our modern Western world says. First of all, that there is such a thing as sin. And then secondly, that a God would be just so capricious and petty that He would even think to punish it. I mean, no loving person would do that. No loving person would punish someone else with death and with hell. The gospel doesn't make sense until we reject some of these assumptions that our modern Western worldview makes and get ourselves into a more biblical paradigm. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And where God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. Where God is holy, holy, holy. And those who come into His presence have to cry out like Isaiah, Woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among the people of unclean lips. Within this paradigm, the Christian gospel makes perfect sense. Jesus comes into this world to die on the cross and to bear the punishment that we deserve for our sin. He bears the wrath of God in our place and thus propitiates or turns the wrath of God away from us towards Himself. And He absorbs the full brunt of that so that there's nothing left for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. We just sang it. Here, namely at Calvary, you may view its nature rightly. Here at Calvary, sin's guilt you may estimate. See the cost. Look at what God has done to His own beloved Son, pouring out His wrath upon Him so that you can understand just how serious sin is. Yes. We ought to learn from passages like this. That sinners deserve to die and that God is perfectly just to kill them. And though we are not ancient Midianites guilty of the same specific sins, that, that ought to make us reflective. Say, so, well, hang on. If I'm a sinner, then that means I deserve to die. And God would be perfectly just to kill me. Yes, that's exactly what we should get. Reading Numbers 31. And then we should see how the story plays out. And how God plants these people in the promised land. How God fulfills all of His promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. To send a seed in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we should see Jesus coming and dying in our place. So that we don't have to die at the edge of the source. We should read this book. We should imbibe its worldview. We should embrace not only its bad news, but its good news.
about Jesus and his substitutionary, propitiatory death. And then we should sing, No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me?